Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture, bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Calcutta to Casablanca here on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. My name is David Lloyd and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia and Northern Africa or Swana Collective that brings you your weekly half hour of Swana Region Radio. All our shows can now be found as podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Breaker. Just search for Swana Region Radio. You may also tune in at any time and listen to our archive shows under the Programs tab at kpfk.org. As we go on air, COP27, the annual meeting of heads of state and their climate specialists, NGOs, and of course, representatives of the major and gas corporations gathers in Cairo. Or most observers anticipate yet another collective effort by the major industrial states to defer action on the increasingly critical and undeniable need to roll back carbon and methane emissions immediately. The UN's latest IPCC climate report, as UN Secretary Guterres warned, shows that global and national climate commitments are falling pitifully short, and that countries' strongest climate pledges put the Earth on a path to warm by a dangerous 2.4 degrees Celsius, that's for our American listeners 4.3 degrees Fahrenheit, by the end of the century. But the excuses offered by the war in Ukraine and the related food and fuel shortages by global inflation and by threatened economic recession will almost certainly lead to further inaction at this latest round of delay and sabotage by governments and their paymasters, the polluting corporations for whom the current crises have spelt a bonanza of windfall profits. Meanwhile, hosting the conference will be a propaganda and diplomatic coup for Egypt's dictatorial President Sisi and his brutal and repressive regime, which currently holds at least 65,000 political prisoners subject to torture and miserable conditions in Egypt's jails. They include blogger and human rights activist Ala Abdel Fattah, whose case we have been following here on Swana Region Radio. More than a dozen Nobel literature laureates called on world leaders to pressure the COP27 host, Egypt, to free the thousands of political prisoners languishing in the country's prisons, including Abdel Fattah. Bitter experience, however, tells us that any such effort on the part of world leaders will be minimal at best, and that COP27 may merely offer Sisi another excuse for further crackdowns. Today, we'll focus on what COP27, and more importantly, climate change itself, or global heating, mean for the Eastern Mediterranean, for historic Palestine, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. What has been the impact on historic Palestine of Israel's colonization and much-vaunted development of the region on the delicate and fertile ecology of this ancient land? Does Israel's spurious and well-worn propaganda claim to have made the desert bloom actually mask its ongoing destruction of Palestine's environment, its uprooting of ancient olive groves, or its extensive plantations of pine forests to rapidly cover the ruins of the Palestinian villages it has destroyed. 
Is its massive water consumption exhausting the limited groundwater available, even as it denies Palestinians equitable access to that precious resource? What's the impact of its intensive agricultural projects on the Jordan Valley, the Nakab, and elsewhere on both the ecology and the flora and fauna of this fragile environment? How has Palestine been impacted by the process of desertification that affects this larger region from Syria to Yemen and East Africa? Today, we'll speak about all these topics with environmental scientist and human rights activist Mazin Kumsia in Bethlehem. Professor Kumsia, by training a zoologist and geneticist, teaches and researches at Bethlehem and Birzeit universities. He previously served on the faculties of the University of Tennessee, Duke, and Yale University. He and his wife, Jesse Chang, returned to Palestine in 2008 to start a number of institutions and projects, such as a clinical genetics laboratory that serves cancer and other patients. They founded and run as full-time volunteers the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability at Bethlehem University, which has become a mecca for visitors to Palestine from around the world, including, I have to say, a few years ago myself. Professor Kumsia has published over 140 scientific papers on topics ranging from cultural heritage to biodiversity to cancer. His many published books include Bats of Egypt, Sharing the Land of Canaan, Human Rights in the Israeli-Palestinian Struggle, and Popular Resistance in Palestine, A History of Hope and Empowerment, which you can find electronically at his website, http colon slash slash kumsia that's q-u-m-s-i-y-h dot org welcome to the show professor kumsia thank you very much david thank you for having me on your show it's my pleasure it's it's all very good to talk to you but perhaps you could begin just by telling us how and why you and your wife jesse chang founded the palestinian institute for biodiversity and sustainability at, at bethlehem university well, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction about the state of our world is uh, basically humanity is heading uh, like lemmings to a cliff if we don't reverse our direction. And it's been uh, my ambition from very young age that I start something um, that leaves this world a little better than was left to us. And, um, and basically working on the ground to put some positive energy where there's a lot of negative energy around. And I can't think of a more place with the accumulation of negative energies than, of course, this focal point of world conflict and world uh, issues, which is uh, Palestine. So this is uh, where I was born. But it's also an important area being the Fertile Crescent, where humans first developed agriculture, domesticated plants and animals. It's the first area out of Africa that humans migrated to the rest of the world through Palestine about 100,000 years ago. And it has a varied topography and geography, making it a, a, you know, a bottleneck of um, of various issues, including even uh, birds migrated out of, uh, from mm. Africa to Europe through Palestine on annual migrations, because it's like a bottleneck between Eurasia and Africa. Uh, right, all right. of these factors combined uh, make this a very interesting and unique place 
even if one is not born here. And I, being born here, of course, have a attraction to this home, uh, the only home that Palestinians have. 14 million of us, 8 million of us are refugees or displaced people. So this is why I uh, decided to leave the comfortable life in the U.S. As you mentioned, I used to work at famous universities in the U.S. like Duke and Yale. And I left all of that to come here to do something positive in a world that's spiraling out of control. And we just need to exert more positive energy to change it. Well, part of that positive energy is the, the meetings that you hold. And just last month, your institute held the Global Biodiversity and Human Diversity Convention at, at Bethlehem University. Can you tell us a little bit that, about that conference and if it came to any conclusions or took any actions? Yes, I'm very proud that we took a lead, even under occupation and oppression from colonialism, we still take a lead uh, globally in impacting the conversation. Uh, we are actually, you mentioned, for example, climate change uh, conference and Sharm el-Sheikh Shared, basically that uh, really uh, a public relations campaign for the Egyptian governments and world leaders who come to have a vacation uh, while uh, jetting back and forth uh, some estimate of 30 to 40,000 people will come to this uh, resort on the Dead Sea, polluting it and destroying the coral reefs in it and uh, spending all the energy of jet fuels to get there. And in the end, as Greta Thunberg said, uh, we'll just go blah, 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 you know, saying all sorts of things that are meaningless without taking any serious action. Now, I say this because, you know, what we are trying to do here is influence these directions of the world. And as Palestinians, even though we are victims, we, we do not really feel like, you know, having to stay victimized. We feel that power is in our hands as people, regardless of whether we are Palestinians or other people who are suffering under this uh, colonial imperialist uh, system of the world, uh, neoliberal capitalism, uh, we feel that we join hands with all the global community, especially the global south, in uh, challenging this system. And so as Palestinians, uh, you know, we have a responsibility just like fellow human beings uh, but the interesting thing about Palestine is it exposes Western hypocrisy on issues of the environment, issues of human rights, issues of international law. Palestine exposes this hypocrisy. And so we should also use our position as Palestinians to do this, to expose this Western hypocrisy. Well, well, speaking of that hypocrisy, one thing I wanted to ask you about that has kind of gone under the radar of the media 
is that it was recently reported that Israel and Lebanon signed a U.S. brokered accord to divide and share the exploitation of natural gas fields in the eastern Mediterranean. I, I wondered what you know about that in agreement and how you'd assess the likely impact regionally and globally of the accord, which which clearly was hastened to to meet Europe's need for na- or uh, desire for natural gas uh, in the current Ukraine crisis. But I, I wondered if you've had any thoughts about that. Uh, yes, I think it's a very unique situation. Lebanon and Israel do not hold any diplomatic relations and they don't recognize each other. Uh, Lebanon, uh, Israel was planning to use and subvert the gas fields off of Lebanon and not allow Lebanon to use its natural resource of gas. Uh, And the Lebanese uh, resistance movement, Hezbollah and other organizations basically said to Israel, look, if you keep uh, pressuring Lebanon, we can also pressure you. We can, uh, in fact, prevent you from using gas fields in the north uh, that are close to the border with Lebanon. Um, And it was a credible threat to the point that Israel uh, was not willing to uh, proceed with gas, uh, uh, you know, extractions in the northern parts of the Mediterranean uh, between those contested areas between Lebanon and and, uh, what's called Israel. Uh, So anyways, uh, because of this, uh, the U.S. intervened and they want, as you mentioned, these gas fields to be activated to help replace Russian gas fields. So they agreed to broker a a deal. The deal is not a direct deal between Lebanon and Israel, but basically a deal where Lebanon signs off on what it uh, considers its borders and Israel signs off on what it considers its borders without either of them recognizing the others uh, borders, so to speak. Uh, So this is kind of a very unusual in world affairs, guaranteed by the US and France, I believe, uh, that the two countries will respect those, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) essentially borders that they recognize for themselves. It is, as you say, one of these absurd situations that seems only to happen around Israel and and its peculiar relations with its neighborhoods. And coming back to Israel, as we all know, Israel has long made that claim to have made the desert bloom in in a barren Palestine. And I just wondered what you think about that claim and how you, you might explain the ways in which Palestinians have traditionally cultivated the land, which is in fact far from a desert, and, and as I've seen myself, very fertile, and how they have or have not, the Israelis that is, have or have not protected the environment, water, indigenous plants since so-called making the desert bloom. I mean, this is uh, the absurdity of the claim of the lies that are perpetuated Palestine, as I mentioned in the beginning, is part of the Fertile Crescent, where humans first developed agriculture and domesticated things like wheat, barley, lentils, chickpeas, olives, etc. And so it has always been fertile. And this was recognized even by the Zionist leaders themselves, and that Palestine was very rich in natural resources, 
and in fertile land that was being cultivated. Uh, when Herschel, uh, in 1897, Herschel, Theodore Herschel was the founder of a modern uh, world Zionist organization and the political movement of Zionism. Uh, 1897, he couldn't be in the conference of uh, leading Zionists. And after the conference, he sent two rabbis to Palestine to study it. And in 1897, before they sent their full report to Herzl, uh, they sent him a telegram. The telegram simply said, the bride is beautiful, but she is married mm -hmm. to another man. Meaning the country yes. is wonderful. It has lots of agriculture, has lots of, but it also has lots of people. What are we going to do with these uh, people? And the answer was obvious that the natives, indigenous people of the country had to go. And this is indeed what happened. As I mentioned, 8 million of us Palestinians are refugees or displaced people. And those people were living off the land before the state of Israel was created on Palestine, on top of Palestine in 1948. 75% of Palestinians, including my grandparents, were subsistence farmers. And uh, now it's hardly less than 4% are subsistence farmers. This was not an accident. This was a meticulous process of disconnecting people from their land, ethnically cleansing them, all in the name of establishing a Jewish state, uh, obviously in a country that was multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious and even multilingual. There were 44 languages spoken in Palestine before 1948. That's 44 languages. Yes. Now it's yeah. basically Israel as a Jewish state with Hebrew language as dominant. Even we are not uh, allowed to speak our own languages in some places and subjected to racism. And the recent elections in Israel, which you may know uh, just a couple of days ago, produced the most extreme government this country has ever known, a government of thugs, basically, and militant colonialists who believe in genocide of the local people. Yes, I want to come back to that topic in a moment. But just before we move there, Mazen, when I visited your institute, I think that was about 2016 that I came, your wife, Jessie Chang, took us around. And from the terrace above the garden, you could see the hills in the distance. And she pointed out to us that you could actually see the line of encroaching desertification. Is my memory correct? And can you speak yeah. to that process of desertification that's encroaching closer and closer uh, around Palestine? Desertification has many causes. Uh, climate change is one, but of course, human uh, other activities, including habitat destruction, building settlements, overexploitation of natural resources, using chemicals, microplastics uh, that are produced by tires uh, from the cars, etc., uh, all add to the challenge of uh, increasing desertification. Uh, in our case, also diversion of the water of the Jordan River 
which Israel basically stole the waters of the Jordan Valley, uh, went down from 1,350 million cubic meters per year in the Jordan River to now only 20, uh, which is amazing. Uh, it's no longer a river, it's um, a small stream. Basically, you can walk across between the West Bank or Palestine and Jordan. And so desertification started coming from the areas of the south, Naqab Desert, Saharo Arabian Sands, up the valleys, the Wadi Araba and the Jordan Valley, and spreading to the uh, west and to the east, the east into Jordan and to the west into the areas of the West Bank, including our region here in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem has already, every year it loses, uh, you know, hundreds of hectares of land uh, due to desertification. Mm. I mean, I'll give you just one example from the last week. Last week we had uh, olive harvests and the olive harvest, Beit Jala, Bethlehem and Beit Sahur are the three main uh, towns. In Beit Jala, the uh, percentage of olive oil in the harvested olives was around 23-24%, in Bethlehem around 20%, and in mm. Beit Sahur around 18%. And Beit Sahur is the area that's near the, nearest to the, and that's my village, it's nearest to the line of desertification that's coming up here. So the production of olives and olive oil has declined in the areas that are impacted by desertification. And this is evident from our own harvest that happened just last week. This is all very distressing news. And I, I'm thinking about, about what the work you do. And I, I wonder how far you see your work as contesting what some people have spoken of as, as Israel's form of eco-apartheid, as well as the straightforward apartheid that, that you were recently commenting on in, in your blog posts. Uh, and, yes, we, and how do you... Th Go ahead, please. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, our we do research, scientific research, and we publish it in peer-reviewed journals. It is not a matter of our opinion about what's happening and how Israel uprooted millions and millions of trees when they destroyed, for example, 530 uh, Palestinian villages and towns, ethnically cleansed them in 1948 and 49. Uh, they also uprooted all the trees around them, both domesticated trees like olives, uh, figs, and almonds, and wild trees like hawthorn, oak, and uh, carobs, uh, they uprooted all these trees and they planted uh, pine trees to replace them, uh, going from uh, agrobiodiversity to basically a monolithic culture of pine trees. And for this, they claim they made the desert bloom. They didn't make the desert bloom. They actually destroyed agrobiodiversity that was already here and planted some pine trees which are susceptible to fire. Pine trees are fine in Europe, but not the best tree to plant in our environment here in Palestine. Uh, and this is just one example of, of this uh, 
hypocrisy and lying, uh, lies basically that they have um, engaged in. Well, Mazen, we, we don't have very much time left, but um, I did want to turn back to COP27, and, and we've both expressed in different ways our skepticism that very much will come out of these meetings down in the seaside resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. But you are yourself a longtime advocate and activist for human rights. So I wondered if you could speak to the situation in Egypt more generally, where so many political prisoners are being held, and what you think is likely to be the effort of global leaders uh, to, to liberate them or to put pressure on Sisi, at least to release or pardon them. Well, I think, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier Western hypocrisy. Western hypocrisy can be seen many, many places. This is just one of them. Let me just cite a couple more very quick examples. When they talk about uh, women's rights in Iran, but fail to mention women's rights in Saudi Arabia or women's rights, Palestinian women here under Israeli occupation who are oppressed, in Saudi Arabia, the situation of women is even worse than in Iran or any other country. And yet, uh, not a peep, not a word is mentioned by Western leaders about this uh, situation of Saudi Arabia and its oppression of its people, and not just Saudi women, but all Saudis. The same with Egypt. You know, we also, I mean, the hypocrisy of Western uh, leaders about the occupation of uh, uh, Ukraine, parts of Ukraine by Russia and annexation of uh, some parts after uh, Russian speaking parts after they uh, did uh, uh, basically pull of the population. Israel annexed you know, many parts of Palestine against international law. And not only did the West not complain, but the West actually recognizes this, and the U.S. recognized the annexation of Jerusalem, illegal annexation of Jerusalem um, by Israel, and even moved its embassy to Jerusalem. The same with Egypt. You know, Egypt is a persistent violator of human rights. There's a U.S. Laws, uh, law that says uh, the U.S. cannot support uh, violators of human rights. And yet they do this for both Israel and Egypt. So again, the Western hypocrisy uh, is more evident in this. Well, thank you. I, I hope that the pressure that's been put on CC will lead to the release of at least some of those political prisoners. And I hope also that, that we can talk again when uh, you have a little more time about this new government in Israel, and in particular about what has already begun, which is the Israeli assault on Janine and Nablus, and uh, its astonishing death toll that has taken place already. Um, but I, I thank you very much for being on with us today. I know exactly how busy you are, and thank you for the work that you do do. And hopefully you can post the podcast that we will do of the show um, and others can hear your voice. Thank you very much, Mazin. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Our guest today has been Professor Mazin Kumsia, founding director of the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability at Bethlehem University. 
If you've enjoyed our show today, please consider making a donation to KPFK, our host station at kpfk.org. Don't forget to mention Swana Region Radio when you pledge. Your support and only your support keeps this program and this station on the air. We receive no corporate sponsorship, which is exactly what allows us to air this kind of programming uncensored by corporate interests. But that does mean we depend on you to survive. Please pledge to KPFK's essential work on our website at kpfk.org. That's all the time we have on our show today. The Swana Collective would like to thank our guest, Professor Mazin Kumsia. And you can hear this interview also as a podcast. All our shows are available to download at kpfk.org and can be found as podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Breaker. Thanks, as always, to our great board ops for production assistance and Ankina Antaram for editing our show. My name is David Lloyd for the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And on behalf of all our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day. Mm-hmm.